Microphone level. Check. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn, your word of, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This lesson should conclude episode 46, Peter's Great Confession. We... Um, I was going to try to get an idea how many lessons we've been in this. Life of Christ page may help me remember. All right, Peter's Great Confession started with Lesson 167. So we've been in this for a few lessons now. And today is 173. So 167, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. Yeah, seven whole sessions in Peter's great confession. All right, this should uh, this should wrap it up today. We're going to deal with uh, binding and loosing, and we're going to tie together the material here that actually leads into the very next section. When we get into episode 47, uh, I really worked it over a couple different ways, and I think the best way to handle that we're going to combine 47, 48, and 49 into uh, a single outline in, in doctrinal study. So we're going to talk about his preparation for death. We're going to talk about how he warns the disciples that he's going to suffer. And uh, they don't like that kind of message. So he has to rebuke Peter and says, uh, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then uh, the uh, recognition that you have to take up your cross if you don't take up your cross, then you're not fulfilling the purpose that the Father has designed you for in, uh, in our present stewardship. So we'll wrap up 46 today with Peter's great confession and be ready for 47, 48, and 49, where he foretells his death, where he promises the kingdom, and where he's transfigured on the mountain and he takes them forward through time and allows them to see a glimpse of what the uh, kingdom glory is all about. So that will be coming up starting next week. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we rejoice at how faithful you are in our lives day by day. We thank you for this time together. And Father, uh, we ask for your hand of blessing upon our study. Uh, open our eyes. We're going to get a little technical as we address some of the grammar of this passage. But uh, give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we have led up to point D, I've kind of held everything off for today. And uh, we'll find out. If, uh, if it takes us an hour, two hours, five hours to teach it, then you're in for a long afternoon. If, uh, if we knock it out in ten minutes, then we'll, we'll cut you loose early. How's that sound? But... I, I really, really want to make sure that we stress this. And, and uh, we put it up here on the screen a, a few minutes ago, but the, we don't typically take seven sessions to teach an episode. If we, taught, if we took seven sessions to teach every episode, we'd be in the life of Christ until the second advent or longer. But this one, with the, 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 the confession of Peter, with the, the rock and building the church and so much, this is a text. The Roman Catholics abuse it and so many others misuse it that I wanted to make sure we're solid before we move on. All right, we are dealing with main point six in the outline, the church, in verses 18 and 19. On this rock I will build my church. And uh, we noticed that the I will build is a future tense. 
indicating it hasn't happened yet, it hasn't even started happening yet. There were ecclesias in the Old Testament, or there were ecclesiae in the Old Testament, all right, plural of ecclesia is ecclesiae. There were ecclesiae in the Old Testament, but they were with reference to the nation of Israel, the congregation of the sons of Israel, the assembly of the, of the sons of Israel, the congregation of Jehovah, for example, different terms for ecclesia in an Old Testament application. But he's not referencing any Old Testament ecclesia because he's referencing an ecclesia that does not yet exist. An ecclesia that has not yet been built. And specifically, this is his ecclesia. Different from the ecclesia of Jehovah, different from the ecclesia of Israel, different from any understanding, Old Testament understanding of ecclesia. I think, uh, so we highlighted that under point B, that this was my ecclesia, an assembly particularly oriented to God the Son, that is, to the hypostatic union, undiminished deity, true humanity, united together in one person forever. In the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the second advent of Jesus Christ, the celebrity of the universe, Jesus Christ, will be center stage. He is the, uh, the centerpiece of God the Father's plan and program for the ages. We also looked at the idiom, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. We saw it as an idiom for physical death. That if you simply understand it idiomatically, as opposed to uh, you know the, the the wooden literal translations, if you understand it as an idiom, then you recognize that it has a reference to physical death. This is what sets the assembly of Jesus Christ apart from any other assembly that's ever taken place. Physical death was always the end of the assembly, as far as those participants were concerned. You know, if a prophet or a priest or a, a believer in the Old Testament entered into the assembly and worshipped under Old Testament restrictions, then that all came to an end with physical death. They, they, never were, they were never again a part of the assembly of Israel once they had departed this earth. And yet, so far as our assembly is concerned, physical death is not a barrier. That uh, the gates of Hades does not prevail against this ecclesia. Now, this ecclesia is a body of redeemed, regenerate uh, recipients of eternal life. The vast bulk of the ecclesia today is already in glory with our Savior. It is only the last stragglers here that are uh, awaiting for the culmination of the church age. All right, as I say, the last thing we're going to deal with now in terms of this text is the principle of binding and loosing in verse 19. So subpoint D for keeping the outline. Binding and loosing are work responsibilities. Binding and loosing are work responsibilities accomplished through entrusted keys. Binding and loosing are work responsibilities accomplished through entrusted keys. That's Matthew 16, 19. We're also going to relate it over to chapter 18 here in a little bit. We'll look at chapter 18 as well. Because Peter is not the only person to receive these keys. The Romans would have you believe that. The Catholic Church would have you to believe that Peter is the one who received the keys. Peter is still the one, you know, in every joke you read about where he's at the pearly gates, right? You, you know, somebody dies and they approach the pearly gates and there's St. Peter. And uh, you got to get past him somehow to get into heaven. And if you don't impress Peter, then you have to go downstairs. And they have all these goofy jokes about uh, St. Peter at the pearly gates. Well, Peter is the one being addressed, and yet... He is not the only one who receives these keys, and that will become apparent. 
Now, I think before we even address this, just look at the text with your own eyes. I want you to notice verse 18, the emphasis is ecclesia. I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. So we have a reference to a, an institution, a reference. You want to think of it, uh, you can't really think of it geographically or a location, but you can think of it as a, uh, as a, uh, a, uh, a reference, an institution, as it were. And then you've got the gates of Hades. And you can think of that as a separate realm, right? If, if Hades is a realm and the church is a realm, you realize that there's more in view than just simply one realm. There's the realm of the church, there's the realm of Hades. And uh, then we have reference to the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this is what bothers a lot of people. Because a lot of people try to equate the church with the kingdom of heaven. And that's a mistake. So let's be careful as we examine these terms. They, they act as if, I will build my church and here's the keys. But they're not the church keys. They're not the keys to the church. That's a distinction we have to make. And if you equate church with kingdom of heaven, a lot of folks do, then you're overlooking what has previously been given in an entire chapter, the mystery parables of the kingdom of heaven from Matthew 13. We want to understand what the kingdom is, is about and what the mystery phase of the kingdom is about. And why is it that a new stewardship comes into, uh, comes into view here as the church is introduced? Now, as we said last week, church is a mystery. The church is not revealed until the New Testament is unfolded and God starts working through the apostles to understand what the body and bride of Jesus Christ is all about. On this day right here, in 32 AD, within a year of the crucifixion, when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, Peter is clueless that Jesus is talking about a mystical body that's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's one body in Christ by grace through faith. Peter knows none of that. You and I have to kind of disassociate ourselves with what we know in our hindsight with our church age application. Peter doesn't know any of that. So let's be careful that we don't confuse church with kingdom of heaven. And uh, I would encourage you to go back and review what we dealt with in chapter 13 on the kingdom of heaven parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, and we have the similes and the metaphors and the parables that describe the mystery form of the kingdom. So he's not given the keys to the church. He's given the keys of the kingdom. And that's, uh, that is a distinction to make. All right. What do we deal with when we deal with keys? We'll talk about that here in a moment. We're talking about uh, delegated authority. We're talking about stewardship. And we'll hand that down here in a moment. Let's get the subpoints though. The human activity is accomplished on earth. Human activity is accomplished on earth. That should be fairly obvious. But let's look at it from verse 19. The human activity is accomplished on earth and it's in the subjunctive mood. That's why I say we're going to get a little bit technical this morning. We'll just jot it down. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll explain it. The human activity is accomplished on earth in the subjunctive mood. It says, I will give you. That's indicative. Future tense. It will happen. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind, that verb is a subjunctive verb, which means it's the language of potential. That means 
whatever. There might be something you bind. There might be something you don't bind. But whatever you do bind, okay, whatever you do bind. So it's left indefinite. It's left as a language of potential. It's left as uh, as an up in the air circumstance. Now, the receiving of the keys is not up in the air. That's an indicative mood statement of fact. I will give you the keys. There's no question about that. Indicative mood, that will take place. But the whatever you bind is 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 indefinite. It's potential. And uh, there will be things that are bound and there will be things that are loosed. And we find that both of these verbs, the verb for binding and the verb for loosing, both of them are subjunctive mood verbs. All right. And so uh, it's, it's left up in, 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 as far as this verse goes, it's left to question what are the items that are going to be bound and what are the items that are going to be loosed? All right, well, the apostles will be accomplishing the activity, but the reality of what's taking place is actually in the heavenly realm, and that will come up here next. The human activity is accomplished on earth in the subjunctive mood. And if you want to take a look at that, we can. The, um, let me just pull this up here, Matthew 16:19. And bring a Greek text up. And we'll look at that as well. All right. Oh, that's too small, isn't it? My apologies. We'll get this into a larger text size. Even the back row commandos ought to be able to be able to read that. All right. You got doso right there. Indicative mood. I will give. There's no debate. It's not up in the air. It's not language of potential. It is indicative mood. It is the language of fact. This is what is going to happen. I will give. But then, uh, and then here's tos, kledos, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, basileus, ton, uranon. But then here is the whatever. That which, if you might... And it's the same third class condition if as if we confess our sins, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that's language of potential because maybe I'll confess. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll uh, abide a little bit further in my carnality until, uh, you know, the discipline heats up even more. Maybe I'll enjoy my carnality until the discipline grinds me down even more. And then finally I say, all right, enough of that. I'm going to confess. <laughs> all right. But if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the language of potential. That's the language of the, the uh, conditional phrase there. Well, here we have whatever, and then you bind, deces. And this ace ending here is our subjunctive mood, deces. It's not indicative. It's not a statement of fact. It's not saying that you're going to bind everything. But the things you do bind, right? And it'll be the same thing with luo here. The, uh, again, ha, aeon, whatever, if, you might, and maybe you might, maybe you won't, luces. Again, that ace ending is your subjunctive mood ending. Whatever you might be loosing, whatever you might be binding, whatever you might be loosing, those things are left in the language of potential in terms of what you permit and what you restrict. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. So the human activity is accomplished on earth. 
Whatever you bind on earth. Whatever you loose on earth. All right? No one here this morning has ever accomplished anything off of the earth, have you? (laughs) No human being has. Other than, of course, you're going to get ahead of me here and say you've accomplished things in the heavenly places. And I agree, you have. We all have. And this is the passage that teaches us that. Your physical body is still planted on earth, but where are you worshiping this morning? Hebrews tells us that we have confidence to enter within the veil. You and I are in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of Jehovah Elohim, our Heavenly Father. But no human being has done anything outside of earth. I don't care what you tell me. You know, the year I was born, people went to the moon, but did they really go to the moon? I'm not talking about some goofy conspiracy theory. I'm saying, guess what they did, though? They went to the moon, yeah, but they had to take the earth with them. Inside their space capsule, inside their spacesuit, inside, they had to have part of earth with them. The air they breathed and everything else. So, yes, they went to the moon, but with a portable uh, addition of the earth to sustain their physical life while they were there. See? No, human activity is accomplished on the earth in the subjunctive moon. The divine activity. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven. As. Not in the subjunctive moon. As a periphrastic. You're going to hate this, but write it down. As a periphrastic future perfect participle. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven as a periphrastic future perfect participle. And that's not human activity. That's what God has done. That's what God has done. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. The divine activity is accomplished in heaven as a periphrastic future perfect Participle. I'm going to explain what this is here in a moment. So we have human activity. We have God's activity. We do what we do on earth. God does what he does in heaven. Now, here's where we have to understand the grammar. Because if you don't take this properly, you get the impression that we're the puppeteers and God's the marionette. And sadly, the King James translation and many English translations since then rendered the paraphrastic future perfect as a simple perfect, a simple future. To say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Get rid of that thinking. It's not will be, it's will have been. Big difference between will be, will be bound, and will have been bound. We want to understand that because we're not causative. If Peter binds something, then God's not obligated up there to say, oh, well, Peter bound it. I better bind it here in heaven. That's not the order and that's not what this this passage says. It says, whatever you bind will have been bound. And so it's still future from the standpoint of Peter, but it's past completed action from the standpoint of the divine activity who accomplished it in heaven. And so the human activity becomes a reflection of the heavenly activity, not a cause of the heavenly activity. Very, very important. 
All right. Simple uh, diagrams then. Let me draw it out for you. Switch over to manual mode here. All right. <laughs> we're such time creatures, aren't we pathetic? All right. You know, we were born. We've been adding, counting the days and years ever since then. And we're just creatures of time bound by time. That's what we are. And we tend to think of, you know, here I am. And the past is the past and the future is the future. And where I am is the present. And that's who we are. We're creatures of time. God is, out, of course, outside of time and uh, the creator of time, independent from time and, and everything else. But from the standpoint of what might happen in the subjunctive mood in the future, in the future, I will give. So this is future. I will give. It hasn't happened yet. From the standpoint of Jesus and his conversation with Peter here, the day of Pentecost did not yet happen, the ascension did not yet happen, but once the church age is underway, once the Holy Spirit descends, once the apostles become spirit indwelled, and once the church is on the earth, then we have now a stewardship in place, and a stewardship that has an interaction between heaven and earth. No stewardship previously has had that. All right. So we'll give its future. That's in a future. And then whatever you bind and whatever you loose, this in the subjunctive mood uh, is in the present, but it's already in the context of the future, so we can put it up here. He will bind in the future. Whatever he binds or will loose, whatever he looses. Okay? But here's the key. Everything that he binds... Everything that he binds will have been bound. And this comes back to a past completed action with the present ongoing results. Will have been bound. So from the standpoint of Peter, it's still a future. He hasn't bound it yet. Anything. But whatever he does bind in the future will have been bound already. In the past. And that's the nature of the periphrastic perfect participle. Now, let me show you how this works. As far as the different tenses are concerned, we're used to past, present, future. Um, perfect, though, is this one I'm drawing out here. It's the past completed action with the present ongoing results. By grace, you have been saved. Past completed action, present ongoing results. In fact, that one also is paraphrastic because by grace, you are presently a having been saved one in the perfect passive. Let me show you what I mean by that. The key to this, by the way, and I guess there's a there's a 30 minute explanation and then there's a, a longer explanation. The key to this, though, is that the earthly activity does not cause what happens in heaven. The earthly activity is a reflection of what God has already accomplished in heaven. All right? And that, uh, the grammar of this helps you to, uh, to understand that. All right, now, again, we have whatever you bind on earth. And this is where the New American Standard does real well. Whatever you bind shall, that's future, 
have been bound, that's perfect. And it combines a future with a perfect. Same thing here in the Greek. This is why this is really, the King James was a nightmare with this. Um, a lot of the translations prior to King James, though, did just fine. The Greek was, was self-evident. The Greek was a, a paraphrastic future. And Jerome put it into Latin and went into the Vulgate as a paraphrastic future. And Luther translated it into German as a paraphrastic future. It was really just... The, uh, and and the, earlier, the earlier English, Tyndale, Wycliffe, the earlier English texts, Coverdale used a paraphrastic future. It's this King James that rendered it as a simple present or a simple future. Um, but here is the shall be. There's the esti, will be. That's future. Will be, but then here's the perfect, having been bound. Will be is future, having been bound is perfect. Okay? So whatever you bind will be having been bound. Whatever you bind in the future will be having been bound. And this is what combines the, uh, the, the future of to be, your is verb, will be, and then the perfect participle right here. So we're combining something future with something that's already been. Does that make sense? All right, um, a little bit awkward, and it doesn't exactly communicate as as well, but it's vital that we understand it because it combines the future of will be. You know, what are you going to be tomorrow? We talk to our, our kids. What are you going to be when you grow up? Ooh, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a policeman. Whatever you're going to be when you grow up. Okay. So think of something in the future, and yet also as the past with continuing ongoing results. Whatever else you're going to be tomorrow, you're going to be a having been saved one. Right? Because right now you are a having been saved one. For all eternity, you, are, you and I are having been saved ones. That's the nature of this paraphrastic uh, perfect. Same thing happens with, uh, with loosing. Um, there's your esti. That's in the future. It will be having been loosed. It will be having been loosed. All right. That's uh, important enough to spend, uh, spend the time on. The same thing happens in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This one the New American Standard does not do as well with. By grace you have been saved. That kind of sounds like it's a past completed action have been saved but the reality is it's a it's a present tense because there's your present of esta by grace you are and here's your having been saved so by grace you are continually a having been saved one this combines the present of are with the perfect participle the one we're looking at in Matthew is a future of are, will be, with a perfect participle. So the combination of, of the is verb with the perfect participles is what makes it paraphrastic. It's what makes it vivid in being described this way. You not, only, not only have you been saved, I don't deny that, you have been saved, but you are now, 
presently. This is what you, this is is, right? President Clinton couldn't get a handle on what is is, right? He wanted to debate what is is. What do you mean by is? Well, this is is. I am, you are, we are. This is the ultimate is. It describes right here, right now, our estate presently is having been saved ones. We are eternally having been saved ones. And so by grace you are having been saved ones through faith. And that's uh, like what we have here. Whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. Will be having been bound in heaven. So the order is simple. It's not our human activity that tells God what to do. It's our human activity that reflects what God has already done. And if God has not bound it in heaven, we're not going to bind it on the earth. Because whatever we bind on earth shall have been already bound in heaven. All right. Binding and loosing are idiomatically understood in the sense of forbidding or allowing. Binding and loosing. Again, we're dealing with an idiom. A common idiom. In fact, the most common idiom in the rabbinic canon law. Binding and loosing are idiomatically understood in the sense of forbidding or allowing. This has nothing to do with who gets into the pearly gates, who is allowed into heaven and who is excluded. This has nothing to do with salvation or loss of salvation. This has to do with activity. This has to do with what's permitted, what's not permitted in the outworking of the Christian way of life. No other terms were in more constant use in rabbinic canon law than those of binding and loosing. They represented the legislative and judicial powers of the rabbinic office. I quote quite a bit from uh, three different sources. Um, Vincent is the third of the ones. A.T. Robertson, Word Pictures, uh, Kenneth Wiest, Word Studies, and Marvin Vincent, also Word Studies. Word studies in the New Testament. Those three are solid, solid exegetical helps for the Greek New Testament. They represent the legislative and judicial powers of the rabbinic office. And, and you have this all throughout. The idea of binding and loosing. What's permitted, what's not permitted. The whole system of, of uh, the Pharisees. It's the Sabbath day. It's not permitted for you to carry your, your pallet. Jesus said, take up your pallet and go home. He, put, he picked up his pallet. He's on his way home. And the Pharisees stopped him and said, oh, 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 what are you doing? It's not, today's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, that didn't come from the scripture. There's no Bible verse that says, don't carry your pallet home after Jesus heals you. Right? But they, the Pharisees, had developed this, these traditions of binding and loosing. What's permitted, what's allowed. And the different schools had different uh, bindings. Hillel, the school of Hillel, was much more restrictive than the school of Shammai, for example. Um, they even uh, tried to rope Christ into some of this. Uh, a couple chapters from now, over in chapter 19, they're going to try to get him into a divorce debate. And they'll say, uh, you know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And this is one of the driving wedges between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. 
One was very restrictive that said, no, no, no. Only in her limited conditions and circumstances was divorce permissible. And the other school said, whatever reason you want, doesn't matter. Write her the certificate and it's done. Even if she burns a meal. One burned dinner. That's it, right? Show me a housewife that never has burned at least one meal in her life. Goodness gracious. Well, see, and that the whole context for that, when we get into that, you'll we'll get more on it, but the whole context for that were the different interpretive schools that had different standards for what they bound and what they loosed and what was permitted. What was a Sabbath day's journey? Well, some were a bit more restrictive than others. Okay? Paul, when he was growing up, was under the strictest of the strictest. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees in the most legalistic and restrictive uh, fashion of Phariseeism that was available. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a student of Hillel. All right. So uh, when Jesus said, what you bind and what you loose, there was no question as far as what Peter and the other disciples here would have understood this to be. That in the outworking of the Christian way of life, in the operation of a church, for example, what do we permit? What do we allow? What do we not allow? And everything we permit is consistent with what is permittable or what's permitted already in heaven, what's revealed in the New Testament and so forth. We talked Sunday night. Why don't we have women pastors? Because <laughs> it's not permitted. And that's already established as a heavenly standard revealed for us in the Word of God. 1 Timothy 2.12. All right. So, in terms of what we allow, what we permit, we've got some examples of this uh, in um, 1 Corinthians 7.17. 1 Only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each, in that manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. You know, what, do you mean, what are you directing? <laughs> Who do you think you are, Paul? Telling us what to do? Precisely. Because in the authority structure of the dispensation of the church, we have apostles. Now in the, in the authority structure of the permanent stage of the local church, we have pastor-teachers. And what they direct as delegated authority is what has already been directed in heaven. There's another instance of that in chapter 11, I think, in terms of the head coverings. If one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. You know, the practices of the local churches were subject to the spiritual authorities of those local churches. And what the, the apostles said was what happened. And of course, their authority came from Jesus Christ, came from heaven. We got this interaction between heaven and earth that um, we're going to see throughout the dispensation of the church. It never has been that way before. Dispensation of angels was entirely a spiritual realm dispensation. Dispensation of Gentiles was earthly. Dispensation of Israel was earthly. They had a priesthood. They, they worshipped God in heaven, but they were an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. We are the first dispensation that resides on the earth as aliens and strangers. That our citizenship is in heaven. Our worship is in heaven. Our treasure is laid up in heaven. Our bank account is in heaven. We're simply here as aliens and strangers. Point four. What is spoken in the singular to Peter is repeated in the plural to the apostles. So Peter's not the only one that gets these keys. 
or has the binding and loosing uh, privileges. We saw a couple of Pauline passages. Paul was clearly binding and loosing in every church he established. What he permitted, what he did not permit. Likewise, uh, all the apostles here in Matthew 18. 18. Truly I say to you, whatever y'all, second person plural, you guys. Truly I say to you, whatever y'all bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Identical construction. Pres- uh, future tense of Amy with the perfect participle. And whatever y'all, all you guys, all 12 of you, plus those that follow you, the church universal here, loose on the earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So the human beings aren't driving the ship. We're reflecting what's already taken place in the heavenly places. What is spoken in the singular to Peter is repeated in the plural to all the apostles. Point five, the entrusted keys speak of authority. They do not communicate access as much as they communicate stewardship. Stewardship. The entrusted keys speak of authority and do not communicate access as much as they communicate stewardship. Remember, this too is, is shocking. Absolutely shocking. They don't have a clue that a change of stewardship is about to take place. Let's face it, Israel has had the stewardship for 2,000 years. Ever since the circumcision of, of Abraham. That it's been the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have been the stewards of God on the earth. And the idea now that entrusted keys, the idea now that there's going to be a change of stewardship... You and I, with hindsight, have no problem with it. We understand that Israel's stewardship's on hold. They will resume their stewardship when the church is raptured. That it will be the stewardship of Israel restored for the age of tribulation, for the, millenni- for the age of reign, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It will once again feature a Jewish stewardship to the Gentile people. But the idea here in 32 AD, when Jesus is speaking to these disciples, that some keys are about to be issued... Now, they're not issued yet. He said, I will, future tense, I will give you keys. The idea that a change of stewardship would take place is, uh, is shocking. The idea of a new stewardship? They're going to they're gonna have to take some time to chew on this. And it's really not going to become obvious, I don't think, until Pentecost. <laughs> because even after, you look at Acts chapter 1, and he's dead, and he's been raised, and now they're finally saying, Ah, okay. Now is the time for the kingdom. Right? I don't believe even then in Acts chapter 1. Look look at Acts chapter 1. I don't believe even then they've caught the drift that a new stewardship is on the way. Acts 1 verse 6. When they had come together, Acts 1 6. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
see, their whole approach is Israel, the dispensation of Israel. They've been the stewards for 2,000 years since Abraham. He said, it's not for you to know the times of the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, something new is on the way. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, even in the remotest parts of the earth. This new thing that's about to come has nothing to do with the stewardship of Israel. It's going to go beyond the land grant of Israel. And of course, now we, with the New Testament and our understanding as church age believers, we know Israel's stewardship is on hold. They're on hold. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Until such time as they are restored when the church is, is removed. So a new stewardship is on the way. The keys are not who Peter lets into heaven or who Peter sends to hell. The, the keys are about what's permitted, what's not permitted, the activity of believers within the new stewardship. If you keep the concept of authority in mind, then I think you do real well. The idea of keys. If, if I hand you, see my teenager would love this. If I hand him the keys to the Mustang... He might want to top, you know, drop the top and cruise around and look all cool for the girls. Well, keys are authority. If I entrust you with the keys, that means you have the authority. See, if you have keys to the church building, you've got authority. You have permission. You can come in to the church property and, and anything like that. Keys are authority. See. And so we're dealing with uh, the entrusted stewardship. I think the UBS handbook does a good job with this. They do a terrible job with the binding and loosing, but they do a pretty good job with the keys here. There is general agreement that keys symbolize authority, but there is wide disagreement among scholars regarding the nature and extent of this authority given to Peter. Some scholars see here the picture of the kingdom of heaven as a large palace with doors to which Peter has been given the keys. Peter would then be the gatekeeper of heaven, having the authority to decide who could or could not enter its gates. And then they have some other things. There is, however, an alternative interpretation, according to which Peter is not the gatekeeper of heaven, but the steward of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. And linguistically, of course, that's a much better hermeneutic, a much better way to translate that and deal with that. You and I, as dispensational believers, have the theology that handles that better than uh, other denominations that would not approach that very well. So, uh, the steward of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. In this regard, his primary function is that of binding and loosing, which would mean the authority to render the correct interpretation to the law of Christ. Peter would then stand in contrast to the teachers of the law that get brought up in Matthew 23.23, who are the self-appointed interpreters of God's law. The Pharisees put themselves in the throne of Moses, being able to interpret the law, being able to determine what was permitted and what was not permitted. The UBS handbook goes on to say, Fortunately, satisfactory translations of this verse may be made without giving explicit support to these or any other doctrinal positions. And it talks. This, by the way, is a wonderful handbook that helps translators try to determine how to translate passages in different languages you know, keys are not always well known. If you're talking about a, a language of a culture that doesn't have a whole lot of keys and locks and, you know, you're out there in the bush with Aborigines in Australia and they're not really up to speed on keys and locks and things like that, and then you've got to find another way to translate, 
to translate the term. That's what this UBS handbook's about. It's about Bible translations into native languages where the uh, original can be communicated. All right. So the entrusted keys speak of stewardship, not access. Then finally, point seven, which concludes this passage, the warning not to reveal this. We have a warning not to reveal this. Matthew 16:20, Mark 8:30, Luke 9:21, all three passages that deal with this event, that talk about the, uh, the confession of Peter, all conclude with the warning. For two and a half years, they've been traveling with him. For two and a half years, they've been proclaiming him as the Christ. They've been proclaiming the kingdom, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, there have been others, uh, the demoniac uh, formerly known as Legion. There were others that after he healed them, the, the deaf man, and he started about, about six months prior to this, he started to prohibit others from proclaiming him. Now he prohibits even the twelve. Now even the twelve are banned from testifying to him as the Christ. For two and a half years he's been presented as the Christ. Now we have a change. Now he's preparing the disciples for the cross. And he's no longer promoting the coming kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, truthfully, is no longer at hand. The crucifixion now is at hand. And then he has to prepare the disciples for this. Big change. Huge change. So, at the point where there is clearly, there is confusion on the part of the Jewish people. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. None of them are accepting him as the Christ. And all of those sums, none of them were right. Peter had it right. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And having been rejected as the Christ, Jesus is now preparing to go to the cross. And so he warns the disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. All of those are according to the scriptures in our gospel record of 1 Corinthians 15. And so he starts to prepare the disciples. He's got about a year now. He's got from here until the next Pentecost, or the next Passover. He's got just under a year to prepare these 12 and a few others to prepare them for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. They're not going to like it. <laughs> we'll deal with this next week. Peter does not like this message. Doesn't like this message at all. You know, go back to that rock message. Let's build a church. Let's, you know, gates of Hades not prevailing. Let's go all that good stuff. Don't, uh, don't teach these crucifixion messages. Don't like those. Well, if these don't happen, those other ones don't happen. The cross has to precede the crown. So the warning not to reveal this. This is a key phrase. And this, the, the expression in verse 21, from that time, pinpoints that this event, episode 46, is the hinge in the whole life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That starting in 47, 48, and 49, we're going to combine those next week. From this point forward, Jesus Christ is under the conviction. Remember, he doesn't do anything without the Father teaching him. He is under conviction that the kingdom has been rejected. That the Messiah will be crucified. Prior to this, 
Prior to this, what was his understanding? Prior to this, what was he, what was he teaching? The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Have a change of thinking. Accept your king. Accept the, the offer. Be prepared to enter into the millennial kingdom. But they rejected it. At this point, Jesus knows that in the plan of God, he is going to that cross. Say, going to the cross rejected by his brethren. Obviously, humanity still needed to be redeemed. If you talk about all the what-if scenarios, obviously, humanity needed to be redeemed. Obviously, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world would still have been slain from the foundation of the world. Obviously, a bride would still have been prepared. Obviously, a church would have still been called forth. You start to think, in what kind of universe, parallel reality, might there have been an Israel that accepted their king and still allowed for a Messiah to be crucified and a bride to be called forth and those other things. We don't know. We don't know what alternative plans there could have been in place. Because the reality is, and the Father knew this, the reality is is that that, uh, Israel rejected their king. And so at this point now, remember, Jesus is not tapping into omniscience to know any of this. Jesus is walking the human walk, learning the word of God, growing in maturity, and, and only knowing that which, uh, you know, you and I can't turn off what we know. But when he laid aside his privileges under kenosis, he isolated from his omniscient knowledge of the universe. And in his humanity, he was limited to the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom and the, and the, uh, the, the uh, walk of faith that the Father made clear to him. And at this point, it's clear to him. Israel has rejected their king. And he's going to the cross. And it will be Israel that puts him on the cross. See? And so he starts preparing his disciples for this reality. I think this is a huge pattern for you and I to be encouraged by as we grow in our understanding. For example... When I became convicted that that this ministry was going to start training pastors and evangelists and and training all 11 spiritual gifts. When it became obvious that the Father was going to use this lampstand as a training ministry for spiritual gifts and ministries. You realize, wow, the Father's opened that door. Crank up the heat a little bit to the angelic conflict. We just went from 350 to 400, whatever the oven temperature is there. Right? I'm more and more under the conviction that uh, our days on Woodrow Avenue are numbered. I might be wrong on that, but my present understanding is I don't think we're going to be here much longer. All right. Now, five years from now, if we're still here, then I'll admit my... Well, you already know I'm not a prophet. I can't predict these things. But we come to different understandings at different times, different convictions at different times. And when the conviction is, is delivered... We have to be obedient to that which the Father is making clear in our life. And, you know, at the moment I knew that I was a pastor teacher, I knew that any other path would be disobedient. And I would have to submit and I would have to get busy and study and learn the languages and train and prepare and get about my Father's business. We get those convictions at different ages. For Christ, it was age 12. For me, it was 21. You know, 20 and 21. I said, you know what? I've got to be about my father's business. And when you're under that conviction, you make application. That's what's happening here. At this point, he knows that uh, new stewardship is on the way. Israel has rejected their king. And uh, he has to begin to prepare his disciples. And they're not going to like it. 
Well, we'll deal with that starting next week. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Point number six was the church. Not really a point, just a title. For um, the church, it has an A, B, C, and a D. Under point six, we just called it the church. Recognizing A, I will build. B, it's my ecclesia. C, the gates of Hades is an Old Testament idiom. D, binding and loosing. Our work uh, responsibilities accomplished through entrusted keys. Yep. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's the physical death of the human body. Which is the only thing that does die. The soul never dies. Yep, the soul never dies. And, and uh, a human spirit starts off dead until it receives life, at which time it is eternal life. Because uh, Hades, when, when physical death takes place, Hades is the realm where the soul is deposited. And so the redeemed soul goes to the paradise of Abraham's bosom. The unredeemed soul goes to torments across the great gulf. But all of it is called Hades. All of it in Hebrew is called Sheol. And so the gates of Hades is is an idiom for physical death. The body goes into the grave, but the soul is deposited in Hades. And so the gates of Hades is the, is the idiom for physical death. When the body dies and goes into the grave and the soul is deposited in Hades. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, it is the it is the application of God's authority through God's representatives to God's stewards, that is to the church. And so whatever the apostles or the pastors or the deacons or the husbands the fathers, the parents, if there is a spiritual authority on the earth today, that's a reflection of the heavenly priorities in heaven. That's right. So what's bound, what's loose, what's permitted, what's not permitted, for instance, in the earthly realm, is a reflection of God's heavenly standard already. We are a heavenly people that reflect God's will on the earth. We are a heavenly people. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And I pray as we move on into the next episodes in 47, 48, and 49, I pray that we'll come to really appreciate the value of unpopular messages. uh, The unpopular messages that are absolutely needed. And the uh, expectation of humility and obedience to... Uh, We don't have to like what we are learning, but we have to live what we're learning because it's from your word and it's for the glorification of our Savior. And Father, that uh, is going to have a lot of applications in our own uh, situations where we find ourselves and what you uh, assign to us. Father, I think of our brothers and sisters. They receive uh, different testings. They receive uh, physical health testings. They receive uh, a medical diagnosis of terminal cancer. Uh, may not have to like it. But we have to live what you've assigned and do so in obedience to the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And Father, that's, uh, that's for your good pleasure. And ultimately, that will resound in a greater glory than would have uh, been accomplished without such a test. So Father, pray we could live these tests for the glory of our Savior. He is worthy of them. And he is worthy of the crowns to be cast at his feet. So work in us to, uh, to achieve these crowns. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.